Y'all hear me? Is that on? I can't even tell. Yeah? I stole this from another room, so they're micless today, I guess. I don't know. All right, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 1. This is part two of our series. We're calling it A Letter to the Dallas Church, and we started it last week, and I'll remind you why we called it that. There was, I'm going to quote a couple TV shows. I'm going to reference a couple that you may or may not have ever heard of, and this is one of them. It was a show that was really popular when I was in middle school. It was called Extreme Home Makeover. I don't know if any of you ever heard of it. This is the main guy. Got to, got to show him. His name's Ty Pennington. There he is. Look at that hair. He's got the ripped jeans and all that. And uh, imagine that guy, you know, showing up to your house and saying, I'm going to fix everything. It would give you a lot of, a lot of confidence, I'm sure. But he um, was this guy, and he, he was the main guy in the show, and they had all these different people. And essentially what they would do is they would go to people's houses that had had damage or a really, really bad living situation, and they would come up with a plan not only to fix the house but to make it something amazing. And I remember some of them in particular were such a mess when they would go into it that they would have this meeting at the beginning, and it would essentially be like, where are we even going to start? Like, there are so many problems in this house. Where are we even going to start to make this thing better? And so I say that because I'm calling this message today Extreme Church Makeover. And the reason why is because in 1 Corinthians, in a way, this is basically what Paul's doing. is He's walking into the house, and he's saying, okay, there's a leak over here. This is broken right here. That room isn't functioning. The lights are off. Oh, and that place is on fire. And how are we going to fix it? And so he's going in, if you remember this, to the Corinthian church. He's writing this letter to them. This letter was written about 2,000 years ago. And this church had so many problems. They were beginning to look so much more like the world than like the church. And so a lot of the, the values and the problems of the world had invaded the church. And so Paul hears about it and he's like, man, I, I want to I address these things. I want to call you to be the church that God is calling you to be. And so if you remember last week, the first thing that he does is surprising. Like you would think he'd be yelling at him, he'd be disappointed in him, he'd be like, man, I hear all these bad reports and, and this stuff is really, really messed up and we're going to talk about all the messed up stuff uh, in the coming weeks, but he starts in a surprising way. How does he start? So for me, in, uh, when I was a senior at Highland Park, I set a record. I, I had a record that year, and my record was me and my best friend were the first people called to the principal's office of the school year, and it was the first day of school, and I'm proud of it. All right, we got the, we got the call. It was first period, first day of school. Your boy and my best friend got called down to the principal's office. Principal Cates, a.k.a. Patty Cates is what we like to call him. It's not why we got called down because we called him that, but we got called in. And I, my first thought is, what if I, and I started thinking of like the six possibilities, you know, and I'm like, we've been here about 13 minutes and we already got called down. Like, I don't even know what, what this is about. And uh, I'm not going to, I don't have time to go into what we did. I know you're dying to know. We'll tell you later. But the point of it is I was so shocked when he actually met me with grace. Okay. There was something that we were a part of that a person in the community had seen. And I mean, was so angry at me and my best friend. And this guy greeted us with grace, even when everyone else, there were a couple people pretty angry. Um, and it shocked me, being greeted with grace when I was expecting anger. And that's how Paul starts his message. 
is you would think, oh, he's going to start with frustration. He's going to call him out. He's going to get angry. And believe me, he's going to call him out. But that's not where he starts. He starts with a reminder of the gospel, all of the grace and forgiveness and love that Jesus has for them because he knows that the foundation of all the change that he's going to call them to comes back to Jesus' surprising grace. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the first problem. There's a ton of problems. I can count around 10 in 1 Corinthians that they dealt with, and we're going to hit the very first problem. And he's going to address the first problem through chapter 4. So we're going to get through chapter 2 today, basically. We're going to skip some stuff. And then next week, we're going to continue it. And so this is the first problem. And I just want you to think about that. Like, picture that concept when I say, like, you walk into the house. This thing's broken. This is messed up. That pipe's burst. It's leaking over here. This room's on fire. Where would you even start? And so I would ask you that. Like, with Paul, you got people getting drunk on communion wine. You've got extreme gross sexual immorality, which we're going to talk about in two weeks. That'll be a fun one. Um, You've got all of these crazy issues. And the question is like, where do you even start? He's going to start in a place that you actually wouldn't expect. And so these are the three things we're going to talk about today. We're going to answer these three questions. What's the first problem? What's the first problem that Paul addresses? What does it have to do with us today in Dallas? Because if you remember, my whole point last week was the church in Corinth is a lot like the church in Dallas today. And I'm going to show you that in a second. And then the third question, what's the solution? So what's the first problem? What does it have to do with us? And what's the solution? And so let's look at what's the first problem. Again, we're going to skip around because we we can't cover everything. So he he starts it off, verse 10 of chapter 1. If you want to follow along with us, we're just going to read 10, 10 and 11 right now. Does I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to be my Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. There were brothers there. It can be translated as brothers and sisters. He's saying, brothers and sisters in Christ, I've heard that this is true. So what's the issue? What's the issue? There's division. There's quarreling. There's fighting. There's not unity. And so how interesting is that? Because of all of the issues you would think that he would start with, like I'd be like, let's talk about the dude that's, we'll just say we have middle school there. We'll say hanging out with his stepmom or whatever, all right? We'll talk about it like that, right? Let's talk about the people getting drunk on the communion wine. Let's discuss that. But that's not where he starts, which is surprising. You're like, why does he start here? He starts with the fact that they're not united. They're divided. They are so prideful that they're living in division. And so why would he do that? Because what you're going to find is that their pride, their self-centeredness, their divisions amongst each other actually cause nearly all of their other problems. Each of the other problems can be traced back to this first one. And so it's reported to Paul. We don't really know who Chloe is, but it's reported to him by her people, someone that's probably in the Corinthian church, that they have this arrogant, superior, and disdainful attitude to one another. And so what that tells us is that their reputation, like this is what they are known for. This is their reputation is de- defined by pride in divisions in fighting. And so this isn't gossip from Chloe and her people. This is her saying, "Hey Paul, we need to fix this. This is a problem. This is hurting them." And so sure enough, if you think about it in John 17, Jesus is about to die. It's literally the night before he's about to die. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And he takes time to pray for his church, including us, which is cool. Jesus prays for us the night before he's going to die. Do you know what he prays for? He prays for mainly one thing, 
the one theme that he prays for is that we would be one, that his church, his people would be united because that is what the world is going to see, John 13, 34, and 35, that the world is going to know that you're a disciple of Jesus by what? By the way that you love one another. Whenever we go on a mission trip and I lead the mission trip, the Senegal team remembers this, it's one of the first things I tell them is that the way that the world is going to know that we're followers of Jesus is by the way that we love and serve and care about one another. It's not by how much you know. It's not by how morally excellent your life is all the time. It's not by how smart you are. You can fill it in. The way that the world, the number one way they're going to know that you're a follower of Jesus is by the way that you love people. And Jesus prays for this in John 17. I told our youth staff this a few weeks ago. I mean, this is our prayer that we'd be so united that we would love each other in a way that the world would look at and say, man, that's different. The way that they love each other and serve each other and care about each other is different. That we would be so united that the world would be like, wow, that's crazy. That's so different than what we see today. When I was a a freshman at the OU football camp, great times in my life, not really, it was a tough week. But the strength and conditioning coach, he's actually at OU now, he would go around and he would chant, um, when you would do stretching, he would say, one team, one heartbeat. One team, one heartbeat. And that would just get in your minds. One team, one heartbeat. Like you're such a united team that your heartbeat is the exact same. Like everything's aligned. That's what Jesus wants for his church, but they're not experiencing that. They are divided. And so the question is like, well, what are they divided about? Like do they not like the music style? Are they mad at each other that go to different schools? They have a rivalry. Like what are they mad about? Well, this is what they're mad about. This is what... It says in verse 12, it says, what I mean, I love it when he does that. It's like, Paul, we don't know what you're talking about. So he explains it. He says, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So you're like, man, what are they talking about? What is he talking about? He's essentially saying that in the church, if Corinth, in that time, is that there are people, okay, it'd be like this group over here is like, hey, I'm following Paul. Like, he's my leader. He's my guy. And then this section right here is like, no, 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 Apollos. And if you read the Bible, one of the things you'll see is Apollos is known as a more gifted speaker than Paul. And so Paul, we love him. He's amazing. But in Acts, he was so boring of a speaker at this time that he put a dude to sleep. And the dude fell out of a window and died, and they had to raise him back. All right, that's how boring he was. And so they're like, Apollos, a little more exciting. We follow that guy. Like, he's, he's cooler, he's more fun to listen to, we follow him. And then this group over here is like, no, 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 we're better than you because we follow Cephas. He's one of the 12 apostles, all right? He may, he's better than both of them. We know the guy that hung out with Jesus, he cut the guy's ear off. Like, he's, he's more well-known, we follow Cephas. And then there's this other group, and they say, we follow Christ. We follow Jesus himself. Now, you may say, well, aren't they right? Like, isn't that what we should do? In a way, but what they're really saying is they're, they're these people that are basically saying, like, um, we don't need any leaders. Like, we don't need to follow church leaders at all. We just need ourselves. And this is actually something that we see a lot in Dallas, this idea of, like, I don't need church leaders. I don't need human authority. It's just Jesus and me. And so we live in this culture a lot of times in Dallas that, frankly, devalues the church. Church is a lot of times something that I'll go to if I have time, if I'm not doing something else. And really what we're called to is to belong to a church. And so you'll have people say, yeah, I want Jesus, but I don't want the church. And that's impossible. You can't have Jesus without the church. The church is where we experience Jesus. The church is where we grow in Jesus. And so we see this 
all the time in our context. And so Paul's going to call them out and say, no, 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 you don't get Jesus without the church. The church is, is what Jesus defined you to be a part of. And so they are divided over which human they want to associate with. And they're divided and they're arguing and they're fighting. And so what does this look like? This doesn't look like a united group, does it, that Jesus prayed for? No, this looks like a sporting event, like a competition. So I don't know if any of you saw the Colorado State-Colorado game, but it's like, is someone going to die? Like, it was, it was crazy. Like, people were fighting, and it was insane. Tennessee, Florida was like that. My mom's a vol. It was a rough day for her. But there, it's like a sporting event. It's like, we're fighting after the game. We're angry. And he's like, no, this is like you in the church. You are this competitive group because they are splitting over which messenger they want to be associated with because it makes them feel better and makes them feel superior to other people. And so here's something that we need to hear is that messengers are a blessing, but they're human. There was this old Saturday Night Live skit. I don't know if you ever saw it. It was the cowbell skit. Have you ever seen that one where Will Ferrell's banging a cowbell? Highly recommend it if you need some entertainment later. Um, and one of the guys in it, who's, he's really funny. He is this like legendary producer or something. And he has this line where they're like worshiping him and he goes, I put my pants on one leg at a time, just like everybody else. Okay. And that's really his way of saying, Hey, I'm human just like everybody else. And so some of us, we worship these people and it's like, no, no, no. They put their pants on one leg at a time, just like everyone else. And so the purpose of a messenger is to present a message that your heart would be changed by the message. And so our heart's affections are intended to go to the messenger or to the message, not the messenger or the method. And so what a lot of us do is we're all about the method or the messenger instead of the message. And so it's great to be thankful for the method. You might say, man, I'm so thankful for the camp I went to. I'm so thankful for the Florida trip. I'm so thankful for this small group. But don't be deceived into thinking that's the point. The point of those methods is to lead you into the message. You might be so thankful for your small group leader, for your resident, for that Christian you know that's affected you well, and you should be thankful for them. Praise the Lord. But their role is to lead you to love Jesus more. It's not to to substitute them for his place. And so what he's trying to remind them is, hey, your ultimate allegiance is not to a person, a human, that's like any other human. Your, Your ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. It's not even to me, Paul. And so instead of being united in Jesus and having that in common, they're divided over humans. And Paul's like, hey, that's stealing your joy and it's stealing your purpose in the world. And so here's the question. What does that have to do with us? That's the second point. What does that have to do with us? There was a TV show, second one I'm referencing, you probably have never heard of. Maybe you have. It's called Freaks and Geeks. I have a picture of it. This is Seth, old school Seth Rogen, by the way. How about that? All right, freaks and geeks. And it was, it's really, it's pretty funny. And it's essentially the freaks and the geeks. The, the freaks are there, the geeks are over there. And it was a show about high school. And the idea was that they're in these two social groups and they had these labels. Everyone was labeled with something. These are the freaks, these are the geeks, these are the athletes, these are the cool people, these are the rich people. Everyone had a label. And then the whole idea was every episode was essentially, what do you do when you throw all these different groups together and you make them interact? When people with different labels and different groups interact. And it made for very interesting TV. But what's interesting is how similar to real life this actually is. See, this is what I would say. We, like the Corinthians, 
label people based on outward appearance. Do we not? We do the same thing that the Corinthians do. It may not be over Paul and Apollos and Cephas, but we divide people based on how they look, based on their accomplishments, based on how cool they are or are not. We create man-made divisions, and through doing that, we try to validate ourselves. We try to make ourselves feel like we matter because we belong to them. We don't belong to them. And so we can relate to the Corinthians where our pride leads us to competition in comparison. We compete with one another. Sometimes we don't even act like we are. We act like we're all cool. But deep down, we are comparing ourselves to other people, which of course produces divisions, just like they experienced. And so what we want, just like they do, we want to be associated with cool people, with important people, with awesome people, with funny people, with popular people, with successful people, with good-looking people. And so because of that, a lot of life and high school is about social issues. So much of what we think about and deal with on a daily basis is about divisions and labels and social issues. And so for some of you this week, you were gossiped about, and it was discouraging. You found out how people were talking about me in this way. For others of you, you might have been involved in a gossiping conversation about somebody and for the same reasons that I just talked about. For some of you, this week, you got left out of something. You found out you got left out of something. There was a group doing something. You didn't get invited, or you deliberately left someone out of something. You're like, I don't really want them there. All right. Um, for some of us, it might have been you got made fun of this week and you experienced it. And, you know, it, it went beyond just making fun of it. It actually um, stung you. It looks like seeking approval. Like we wake up every day and I'm like, man, I need other people to approve of me. It's like the number one thing we're thinking about. And so for me, I experienced both sides of this when I was in high school. I was at times the guy that was leaving somebody out or making fun of somebody. I have a very um, I can have a sharp sense of humor at times. I love sarcasm. It's one of my love languages. And so I have to be careful because in high school, I could use that to my advantage and I could throw someone down and it would make me look funnier. Or I was on the flip side where maybe I was left out of someone or I was made, uh, uh, made fun of. And I remember um, hearing this one guy senior year of high school that I thought was a friend and I had found out that he was just making fun of me behind my back. And then I went up to him and talked to him about it, and he acted like nothing ever happened. And so I don't know if any of you have experienced this, but I just want you to think about this. Where do you experience these divisions in your life? Where do you experience labels in your life? Like this person's this kind of person. I'm this kind of person. Where do you experience it? You could ask it like this. Um, what makes you feel superior to other people? Like what in your life makes you feel like you're better than a certain group of people? What makes you feel inferior to a certain group of people? It could be how you look. It could be your performance in sports. It could be anything. What makes you feel superior and inferior? See, we all experience divisions of different kinds, every single one of us. But the question is, what causes them? And what causes them is pride, arrogance, and self-importance. It's all about self. See, we live with this need to be filled up we need something outside of us to fill us up and validate us and affirm us. And so if I'm not getting it from God, I've got to try to get it from other people. And one of the ways to do that is to create these labels and divisions. And so that to me explains so much of the world we live in today. 
and it explains a lot of high school. And I hate to tell you this, but grown-ups do the same thing. So it's not just a high school thing. There's a lot of adults that it's like, are we still at the middle school lunch table? Like we're still divided based on, oh, we look this way, we're cool, we're not. Okay, do y'all know what I'm talking about? Do y'all relate to this? If not, then we're wasting our time today. We don't really, this isn't going to be relevant, but I think, I think that it is. One of the ways this looks like, too, is that we care too much about what some people think of us while looking down or just not caring about other people at all. And so what some of us do is we try to avoid certain people, even at church things. And so a lot of us, um, my hope, I'll put it this way, my hope is that every one of you has a small group that has someone in it that's hard for you to relate to. And you might be like, what? I'm going to say that again. My hope is that every one of you would have someone in your small group that's hard for you to relate to. Why? Because that causes you to love someone and learn from someone that's different than you. And so if you have a group of people around you that's only like you, I would challenge you to invite some people that are different. And so the question is this, how do we get humility instead of pride and how do we get unity instead of divisions? That's going to take me to my third point. What's the solution? Paul's going to spend two weeks on this. He did it, but I am. He's spending two, four chapters on it. I'm going to do two weeks. And so let me give you the first main principle if we want to experience healing in these areas. Okay, so I'm going to read you a lot of scripture, and I just want you to pay attention to what are, there's a couple words that come up over and over again. This is a lot but you can handle it. And I'm going to make a couple points about it over the next 10 minutes or so, and then we are going to be done. All right, so here we go. This is what he says. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? We're picking it up in verse 20. Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. That's the gospel. To save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. He's basically saying you're not awesome, all right? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, it's the second time he said this, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. All right, just five more verses here. And when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So if you're like, what's happening? Let me break it down. There's one word in particular that's repeated over and over again. Did you catch what it is? He uses the word wisdom or wise over and over. Do you notice this? It, it comes up 20 times about in chapter 1 and 2. We're not reading the rest of chapter 2. 
about 20 times the word wisdom comes up. And then he talks about the cross. He's going to go back to Christ crucified and the cross over and over and over again. And so this is what he's going to get at. This is kind of the thesis. I'm going to break this down for you. The divisions in Corinth, the pride in Corinth and in Dallas can be healed if we will see the distinction between the world's wisdom and God's wisdom. The world's wisdom and God's wisdom. So you have two ways to live. Every one of you, and I want you to hear this, has a choice to make for your life. You have two options, and your parents can't make this choice for you. This is you. You can go what we're going to call the foolish life, or we can go with the wise life. Okay, the foolish life or the wise life. So this is what I want to contrast. I think I have it up here for a few minutes. The foolish life versus the wise life. And so based on this passage, what you see is the foolish life is all about pride. It's all about focusing on yourself. It's all about being consumed with what you have, your status, how you look, what other people think of you. It's also all about human power and human wisdom, which means everything depends on you. It rejects God's truth for the world's way. Okay, so it'd be like, yeah, you can, well, I'll put it like this. In that time period, they would think the cross was crazy. Because it looks like failure. Like we wear cross necklaces and they'd be like, You're, that's like wearing an electric chair necklace. Like it's a method of execution. Like what are you doing? Like you wouldn't even talk about the cross in certain company because it was so crude. And so the message that God would come into the world as a man is already offensive. Like you've lost billions of people around the globe just with that, like Muslims, for example. Like you're already out there. But we're going to take it a step further and say God became a man and was crucified. Like that's that's a crazy message. And so I want to we we're used to it, but I want you to think of it like this. If I were to take the most successful person and popular people out of your high schools and I were to say, "Hey, I've got an announcement. This is something that happened today. A man was executed by political authorities in a small Middle Eastern country and he was claiming to be the savior of the world." All right. Most people in Dallas wouldn't even consider it. Like, they'd just be like, no. Like, if I took the most successful person in Dallas to the garbage dump where Jesus was crucified, and I pointed to it, and I said, look, he's naked, he's covered in blood, hanging by nails on a tree, and I say, your only hope in life and death is believing that that man is God, and he's your Savior, and you're fully dependent on him. How do you think most people would respond to that? Most people would roll their eyes and laugh and maybe at best feel sorry for the guy and then move on with their lives. Or maybe they would give lip service to it because that's the culturally acceptable thing to do in Dallas, but then they would continue on with their life that's completely focused on themselves. That's the foolish way to live, but that's what the world does because the cross looks like foolishness and weakness to the world. The symbol of the foolish life that doesn't get it, is a ladder, okay? It's, it's this. It's constantly having to climb a ladder in your life to get to God, to find success, to find everything you're looking for. It's all on you. You have to climb a ladder and work hard to get yourself somewhere. Now, don't miss this. I want you to hear this. The world says this is wisdom. The world says this is the best way to live. We live in a world that encourages and celebrates pride, self, in the latter. Nothing in the world is encouraging you to receive the truth of the cross. 
But the reality is that this is like someone flying a plane. This actually happened one time that is upside down, but they think it's right side up. Picture that if that's you. That would be stressful, wouldn't it? Okay, this actually happened one time. Someone flew a plane. It was upside down. They thought it was right side up. That's what's happening in the world. The foolish way of living, of saying, oh, no, no, this is actually great. It's like, no, 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 that's upside down. Okay, nothing in this world, like I want you to hear it. It's all going to pass away. All of it's going to pass away. It's not going to satisfy you. It's a foolish way to live. And so there's another way that's available to us. It's the way of wisdom. The symbol of the wise life is not a ladder. The symbol of a wise life, based on this passage, is a cross. It's completely different. It's the wise life is all about being shaped by a cross. This is what Paul's saying. And so I want to give you four quick things, and I'm going to pray us out of here, that the cross does for us. If we really understand the message of the cross, that the cross is where God's wisdom is found. This is going to heal our pride and our divisions. And so I'm going to go quickly here. There's four things. Number one, the cross humbles us. Think about this. He says it over and over again in this passage, is that God shows a plan to save us. They would destroy our dependence on our own wisdom and our own power. And so Jews wanted it to be powerful. Greeks wanted it to be human wisdom. And we do the same thing. Like every problem that we have as humans, we typically address either through our own wisdom, we try to strategize and figure it out, or through our own power, our strength and our abilities. And so it's amazing the things that we can accomplish. Like some of you know, I've been watching the Mission Impossible movies again, and they solve a lot of problems through their own wisdom and their own power. But there's one problem you can't solve through your own wisdom and your own power, and that's your salvation. You can't do it. You cannot earn your way back to a relationship with God. Why? Because he says it twice, no one can boast. There's no one that can say, oh, I did it. Like, I contributed something. Like, I'm better than those people because I believe in Jesus. Like, no, no, no. You didn't do anything. The cross humbles you. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, how can we be proud? Stand at the foot of the cross and count the drops of blood by which you have been cleansed. He says, look at that. Look at what he did. How can you be, be proud? Pride cannot live underneath the cross. And so it heals divisions because you realize I'm a sinner like everyone else. I'm on the same playing field as everyone else. And so I can't look down on anybody. The second thing, though, is that the cross satisfies us. The cross satisfies us. And so what you see here is that there are some needs that we all have deep within us that no matter how hard you try, how much you climb the ladder, how successful you are at anything, how many people like you, you're not going to be able to meet those needs. But Jesus gives them freely to you as a gift. Because Jesus on the cross is declaring how much he loves you, because he loves you and accepts you on the cross, you don't have to do things to compete with other people. You don't have to live for the approval of other people. You don't have to live to build up your resume. It satisfies you because you're like, oh, I don't need to live this life of comparison, division, and competition anymore. The cross changes you. The more you see his mercy and grace towards you, it just melts your heart and it gives you this desire to go with him. And he knows this with the Corinthians. If they just get how loving and kind and overflowing with compassion God is on the cross, it will change them and it will change us too. And then the last thing, the cross unites us. So what he's going to get at 
is that you have something that unites you to people that are very different from you. It's why we can go to Senegal, not even speak the same language. And I, our translator, CD, I text him and talk to him all the time. We don't have like anything in common, but we have Jesus in common. And it unites us. And so if you've seen the movie, Remember the Titans, there were African-Americans, there were white people, they were divided against each other, right? And the whole movie is about them becoming united. We have something so much bigger than a football game to unite us. We have a, a Savior who loves us that can unite us. And that's what makes the church different than any other organization, any social club, any team, any friend group, is that it is a community and a family that's formed by the cross, which means all of our relationships, how we care for each other, how we love each other, how we date, how we marry, how we treat other people, how we serve is to be shaped by the cross. And so what I want to do is just end with these two questions. And I'm going to pray for us and we're going to sing a song that will just center us around the greatness and the love of God. Is this, are you shaped more by the culture or are you shaped more by the cross? I just want you to reflect on that today. Are you shaped more by the culture or are you shaped more by the cross? And is your life more about the latter climbing it, trying to earn it, trying to get it for yourself? Or is it about receiving what Jesus freely gives you? Okay, I wanna, I'm going to pray for us, and I just want to invite you to sit in that for a little bit, and then SP, you can come on, up, come on up here. God, we do just thank you that you are a God who loves us so much that you sent Jesus to become a man and to die on the cross to demonstrate that love for us. And so, Lord, I just pray that that would humble us that we would not see ourselves as better than other people, but it would also satisfy us that we would know that all the love that we're looking for, all the acceptance, all the affirmation is found on the cross. And so, Lord, help us experience that. Um, Lord, help us be united to people this week in a time of life where it's so easy to be divided, so easy to tear people down, it's so easy to leave people out. Help us be united. Um, and, Lord, help us, help us live in the reality of the love that the cross demonstrates. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.